Let's pray together uh, before we have our time in God's Word. Father, we are, gracious, we are grateful. We are grateful to you for your goodness to us. We are grateful to you for the fact that we can gather together here today. We are grateful to you, Lord, that you have given your Son to us that we can know you. And yet, Father, we are sinners. Even those of us who are in Christ continue to sin, continue to disobey your word, continue to violate what you have called us to, Lord. So, Father, we rest on the forgiveness and freedom that you have given to us in Christ. We plead his blood today and every day, Lord. That when you look upon us, Lord, you see the righteousness of Jesus Christ rather than our sinfulness. And Father, we know from your word that that is the case, Lord, that you do give us his righteousness through his death and burial and resurrection. And so, Lord, we thank you. We thank you, Father, that you have given us freedom from sin, freedom from the law, freedom from these things, Lord, that are oppressive to us, that keep us from freedom in Christ, Father. We thank you, Lord, that you have granted us freedom by his blood. And so, Father, today, as we go to your word together, as we seek Christ together, I pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes and our minds and our hearts that we would be shaped and changed by your word today. Guard us, Father, against false teaching and against falsehood in our own hearts, Lord. Help us today, Lord, to glorify Jesus in all things. We pray this in his name and for his glory. Amen. Turn your Bibles, please, to Psalm 10. Psalm 10, and we continue our recurring series through the Psalms, which we kind of consistently come back to time and again, Uh, and today, as I said, we are in Psalm 10. Last week, we looked at Psalm 9, and Psalm 10 and Psalm 9 are, are very closely linked together. They're both heavily focused on the theme of God's justice. In fact, some scholars believe that Psalm 9 and Psalm 10 are actually one psalm. That there's really only 149 of them because Psalm Psalm 9 and Psalm 10 are the same. I don't believe that. I think that the numbering that we have in our English Bibles is correct and proper. Uh, But there there are legitimate reasons to think that. And the, the consistent subject matter is one of them. But Psalm 9, where it opens with rejoicing in the goodness of God, Psalm 10 questions why it seems that God does not act against the wicked. After all, if God is just, how can wickedness continue? This is a universal question. One that God's people throughout the ages have wondered in dark times. I guarantee you, In the days of the persecution of the early church, 
they often wondered this very thing. When is Jesus going to come again and put an end to the wickedness in the world? Last week, we saw in Psalm 9 that, that, that the justice of God is rooted particularly in His righteousness. That it is the righteousness of God, His holiness, that makes Him just. In, that, that makes His ways just. Psalm 10 helps us to see that the justice of God is trustworthy because of His unlimited knowledge and power as well as his eternality. That God is just and that his ways are just even when they don't seem just to us because God knows all things. Because God can do all things. His ways are not our ways. My hope and prayer for us this morning is that we would all find our hope in God and that we would trust in the finished work of Christ to bring all wickedness to an end. Because our God is just. So let's look together at Psalm 10, starting with the first 11 verses, where we see wickedness without consequence. If you got one of our sermon listening guides out of our bulletin or off of the back table, uh, you'll see that that's our first point, blank without blank. That's wickedness without consequence. So let's look together at Psalm chapter 10, beginning in verse 1, and we'll look all the way through verse 11. Why, O Lord? Do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul, and the greedy one for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high, out of His sight. As for all His foes, He puffs at them. He says in His heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under His tongue are mischief and iniquity. He sits in ambush in the villages. In hiding places, He murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in His thicket. He lurks that He may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when He draws them in, when he draws him into His net. The helpless, are cru- the helpless are crushed, sink down, and fall by His might. He says in His heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. I think that most, if not all of us, can identify here with David in the first verse of Psalm 10. Where is God in times of trouble? God, why do you stand far away. Can't you see all of this evil and wickedness that is going on all around us? Where are you, Lord? As we look at the fallen world around us, it can certainly seem as though wickedness continues unabated and that God is not stopping it, almost as though there are no consequences for evil. And David, again, uses the covenant name of God as he asks this question. Why, O Yahweh, do you stand far away? It's almost as though David is trying to remind God 
of his obligation, of his promise to care for and to protect his people. But for those who know God, we know that God does not need a reminder. God is not a man who forgets his obligations. God is not a person who finds something better to do, who lies and deceives in order to manipulate, and then when the time comes for them to step up and act, they say, nope, not going to do that. That is not in God's character. God does not need to be reminded. In truth, the use of God's covenant name is to remind God's people of his provision, not to remind God. That when David calls upon Yahweh, it is a way for the Lord to remind his people, I am the God who is, ha- who is in covenant with you. I am the God who has made promises to you. Even in the midst of great wickedness and great evil, even in the midst of this oppression that seems as though it will never end, I am still that God. And so rather than determining whether or not God is good based upon the circumstances of our lives, David uses the covenant name of the Lord here to remind us to, base, to judge our circumstances based upon the character of God. Now listen, I'm going to be really frank with you and, and, and tell you the truth, that this is exceedingly difficult. It is not as though a switch can be flipped where you can just say, hey listen, don't look at what's around you, look at the Lord. And you go, oh okay, everything's better now. It's not that simple. But we are called in Scripture, to take every thought captive. We are called in Scripture to set our mind on things that are above. And so while it is tempting for us to cry out like David does, why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? We must remember that our God has promised to never leave us nor forsake us. Ever. And so David begins with that in verse 1. Where, where are you, Lord? Why are you not acting? Why are you not working against the wicked? And then, for several verses, he describes the wickedness that is going on. He describes particularly the wicked person, the wicked man. And we see two things in this text that stand out about the wicked. They are arrogant and they are aggressive. They are arrogant and they are aggressive. In verse 2 it says, In arrogance the wicked hotly pursue the poor. We see this arrogance played out in several ways. First of all, we see right there at the beginning that the arrogant, wicked man has these schemes to oppress the poor. We talked a little bit last week about how one of the things that the Lord did in His law was set up strict standards for how the the poor are to be treated within the nation of Israel. The poor are supposed to be treated a certain way. They are not to be taken advantage of. And yet, one of the things that repeatedly happens throughout the course of Israel's history is that the wicked take advantage of and oppress the poor for their own gain. And here in Psalm 10, David talks about this. That they are hotly pursuing the poor and they are are devising schemes 
in order to oppress them. To take what they have for themselves, to, to, to enslave them in perpetuity. These are all things that took place within the society in violation of God's law. But what's interesting here is that the wicked man is so arrogant that he doesn't even hide this. In verse 3, for the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul. And the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. They are so arrogant that they are boastful about their desires. They are boastful about their intention to have as much as they can possibly get. One of the things that have, that has that has greatly risen in a social media age is the boasting of people about the desires of their soul. Whether we're talking about financial gain or sinful gain, we just had an entire month that our culture has dedicated about boasting about the wicked desires of their soul in Pride Month. That is what we see in our culture today. And some of us are tempted to go, man, it didn't used to be like that. Yes, it did. Yes, it did. Things are not more wicked today than they were 50 years ago. They might be wicked in some slightly different ways. It might present differently. But the wickedness of man has been great in the earth since, oh, I don't know, about Genesis chapter 3. It's not, it's not worse now than it was before. It's just more easily seen now by a greater audience of people because of things like the internet and social media. But it's not new. And they're boastful of the desires of their soul, no matter what they are. They're boastful about them. And what does he say? It says that the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. Again, I don't, I don't want to keep beating this dead horse, but we just had an entire month where people cursed and renounced the Lord while boasting about the desires of their soul. That's wicked. That's arrogance. And we see that all through the land. There is a rejection of God and a denial of even His existence. In the pride of His face, the wicked does not seek Him. In the pride of His face, the wicked does not seek Him. All of his thoughts are, there is no God. I want you to understand something here. There's more than one way to deny the existence of God. There's outright denial. What we would consider to be atheism, where someone says, there's no God, and they say it out loud, and they say it proudly and boastfully. But that's not the only way to deny the existence of God. That's not the only way to reject God. You can reject God with your heart, with your actions, while giving lip service to the existence of God. You can say, I love the Lord, while simultaneously denying His existence with your actions. That is what 1 John is all about. Those who say, I love God and hate their brother. I love God and do not follow His Word. Those people are lying. Don't be a liar about God. Examine your own heart. 
In verse 5, David says his ways prosper at all times. Now that's not really true. It's not really true. But it can seem that way. If you read back about in history, particularly American history, and you read about some of the men who are just, who have been the filthiest rich men in our history, you, you will read about their lives and notice there's a pattern there of usually ill-gotten gains, usually stepping on the poor to get where they are, and it just continues forward as though they prosper in all things. They skirt the law, they cheat the tax code, they employ slave labor in third world countries, they do all of these things, and it seems as though they continue to prosper at all times. They don't. Eventually their prosperity comes to an end, maybe not in this life, but it does end. But the main point that David is making here is the second part of that verse where he says, your judgments are on high out of his sight. You see, the true measure of real prosperity is whether or not the judgment of God sets against you. But for the wicked, that is not something that they think about. That is not something that is in their mind. And so to them, they look at their life and they go, man, I am prospering at every turn. Every investment I make makes me more money. Everything that I do, I get away with. I am prospering all over the place. And what David is saying is they don't even realize that they are storing up wrath for themselves because your judgments are far out of his sight. Because they're high and man is low. And then he says, as for all his foes, he puffs at them. This is a little bit of kind of odd biblical language, but essentially he's saying like, he, he puffs himself up at them. He's saying, my foes are nothing. My enemies are nothing. Let them come at me. They can't harm me. What are they going to do to me? And what's funny about that is when you make yourself an enemy of God, you can puff yourself up all you want to. You will not stand in the face of judgment. David is using a little bit of wordplay here to say, hey, he thinks he's prospering, but the judgment of God is against him. And he is puffing himself up at all of his foes, but he has a greater foe that he does not even recognize. And he's not going to puff himself up against that one. And he kind of concludes the, the arrogant man kind of subsection there by saying in verse 6, he says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. The arrogant, wicked man does not acknowledge their own sin. They do not acknowledge their own failure. They do not acknowledge that they will face judgment for their wickedness. Instead, they believe that they will be able to act this way in perpetuity. And not only them, but their children and their children's children will continue to act this way. That they will never face real consequences. That their prosperity will continue to grow exponentially throughout the generations. That doesn't happen, folks. It doesn't. Ill-gotten gains never stay. Whether through the Lord's judgment as, as being very overt and obvious, 
or through the Lord's judgment in more hidden means, ill-gotten gains do not stay. Whether it's through poor money management, stock market crashes, companies collapsing, it always goes away. You cannot outrun the judgment of God ever. In your arrogance, you may think that's never coming for me. It is. Before I came here to serve as pastor almost two years ago, I did youth ministry and children's ministry for more than a decade. And let me just be honest with you folks. Teenagers, I'm talking to y'all. This is coming for you. You believe you are invincible. You believe I've got years and years and years and years ahead of me. This is coming for you. Don't believe arrogantly that the judgment of God is not against you even now. Because it is. If you are in sin, if you are wicked, the judgment of God is set against you. David continues on in this kind of subsection with the aggression, the aggression that we see in the wicked man. He says in verse 7 that his mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. The wicked is someone who is violent in both word and intention. They are using their tongue to do harm. They are using their words to scheme to do harm to other people in addition to actually doing harm. He sits in ambush in the villages. In hiding places, he murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws him into his net. What we see here is we see that the wicked man is aggressive. He is aggressive in his speech. He is aggressive in his intentions. He is aggressive in his planning. And he actively acts against those who are helpless. He seeks out the most vulnerable and does them harm. Of course David is outraged at this. We should all be outraged at this. Those who do harm to those who are helpless and vulnerable are incredibly wicked. The Lord despises that. And we should too. We as the people of God should stand to defend those who are defenseless. We should. Because usually that is who the wicked attack. Because they feel as though there's no recourse for that. We see this in adults who abuse children, both physically and otherwise. We see this in those who take advantage of the poor. We see this in those who take advantage of the elderly or the mentally incapacitated who abuse them and hurt them in order to take their government checks and things of that nature. All of these are things that fall into this category of great wickedness, that fall into the category of aggression that the wicked has. 
It says in verse 10 that the helpless, helpless are crushed, sink down, and fall by His might. Remember that we, we, we see in Scripture that the Lord is the one who helps the helpless, right? And here's David talking about how it all looks hopeless, it all seems lost, that those who are helpless are crushed by the weight of the wickedness against them. And the wicked man says there in verse 11, he says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. The wicked believes that the Lord does not keep His promises. The wicked believes that God has better things to do than to care for His people. He believes that because the Lord did not act yesterday, that He will not act tomorrow. He believes that the circumstances that he can see dictate the reality of who God is. It's the same thing that we talked about a moment ago, that we should not allow that to be the case. The circumstances that we can see are not the arbiter of the character of God. The character of God is set. It has been forever and will be forever. He is unchanging. There is nothing that changes God. Nothing can act upon Him to cause Him to be different tomorrow than He was today. And so if the Lord has promised something, His promise is sure and you can trust it. You never have to question whether or not God will keep His promise. Because He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Notice that both of these characteristics of wickedness, the arrogance and the aggression, are marked specifically by what they say in their heart. Did you notice that? David talks about their actions and the things that they are doing. And in both cases, he concludes those little subsections by saying, he says in his heart. He says in his heart. One of the greatest errors that the, that the American church has committed over the last hundred years or so, specifically, is we have wrongly focused on outward actions as though they corrupt our hearts. We have said, don't go doing those things because it's going to make you a sinner. Instead of rightly recognizing that this sinful nature of our hearts is what causes our outward sinful actions. It is not, listen, parents, I want you to hear me clearly here, okay? It is not peer pressure that makes your children sinners. It is the fact that they are sinners that makes them sinners. It is their sinful hearts that make them sinners. Now, are they badly influenced by bad influences? Absolutely they are. But they cannot create in our hearts what does not already exist. Okay? The wrong crowd does not do open heart surgery to make us sinful. We are already there. And so, while we should 
care about who our children and who we spend time with and what we watch and what we listen to and all of those things. We should rightly care about that. But we can't stop there. I cannot tell you how many parents I see devastated because they protected their child from everything in the world. And then their child moves off and they're off into sin. And they think, how could this happen? I shielded them from all of those terrible influences. I guarded them from all of these bad things. How could they then go and fall into sin? It's because you forgot that, to quote an old, an old movie, that the call was coming from inside the house. That the sin was coming from inside their heart. And don't forget what Jesus said. That even if your outward actions may be clean, the condition of your heart determines your sinfulness. In Matthew 5, he says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. And I guarantee you, when Jesus said that, a lot of people in the crowd were going, yes, and I've never killed anybody, so I'm doing great. And then Jesus does what Jesus does and says, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Jesus says that just because you haven't outwardly murdered anybody, if you have hated your brother in your heart, you are a murderer. We must deal with the sin in our own hearts just as vigorously, if not more so, than we deal with guarding ourselves from sinful influences outside of us. We must deal with our own hearts. The next thing we see in verses 12 through 18 of Psalm 10, is we see, Arise, O Lord. Arise, O Lord. David says, Arise, O Lord. O God, lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, You will not call to account? But you do see, for you note mischief and vexation that you may take it into your hands. To you the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that man who is of the earth, may strike terror no more. So how does David respond to this great wickedness? Remember, he has said, Lord, why do you stand far away? Where are you? And then he recounts the wickedness that he sees. And so what does David do? Does he throw up his hands and say, well, I guess the, the wicked are just going to prosper forever. David does the, thing that, that we, the only thing that we can really do. He calls upon the Lord. That is how we should respond to wickedness. He says, he calls upon the Lord and he says, lift up your hand. Lift up 
your hand. He, he gives the Lord a call to action. He says, Lord, we need you to move. We need you to act. We need you to do something. Lift up your hand. And then he says, forget not the afflicted. David makes an appeal to the nature of God. He makes an appeal to the nature of God. Excuse me. He says, why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account? Why does the wicked say? Why does the wicked do this? Why does the wicked renounce God? God alone can act in such a way that they will no longer be able to do this. And so David is calling upon the Lord to show himself to be good. To show himself to be God. He is saying, look at what the wicked are saying, Lord. Won't you act? Because they're saying that the wicked does, that God does not see, that he will not call to account. But in verse 14, David says, but you do see. David knows the truth. That even though the wicked may say, the Lord has forgotten, he doesn't see. David says, you do see. You note mischief and vexation that you may take it into your hands. This is a way of David saying that the Lord keeps record of sin. The Lord knows every wrong that has been done to His people. The Lord knows every sin that has been committed by His creation. He knows. And why does He take note of it? That He may take it into His hands. That he can take matters into his own hands. That he can deal with this sin himself. And David says, to you, the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. David is essentially saying that God has proven himself time and time and time again. Remember, he opened this section, verse 12, by saying, Arise, O Lord. And again, that's Lord in the small capital letters, indicating that that is the covenant name of God, the name Yahweh. He is calling upon the covenant God who has made promises to his people and saying, You have been good to your people over and over and over again. The helpless come to you and are safe. They have nowhere else to go. But you help them. You have been the helper of the fatherless. Those who have no one to protect them. You have helped them. And David doesn't just stop with help them. David says, break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. And I want you to understand here, okay? This is not simply David saying, be mean to the people who are being mean to me. They hurt me, so hurt them back. Notice the language he's using. He's asking God to break their arm. Well, what do they usually do to do wickedness? Their arm. He is saying, God, take away their ability to do wickedness to your people. Break their arm. That they can no longer harm your people. And he says, call his wickedness to account. Until you find none. Deal with his wickedness so strongly, so severely, so thoroughly that it is all eliminated. Take action against them and their evil schemes. 
And how can David trust that the Lord can and will do this? He says the Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. David says, I know the Lord will do this because Yahweh, our covenant God, is king forever. All the nations of the earth will pass away. They will perish from his land because all land is his land because he is king forever and ever. And so no matter how mighty they may seem, they will perish. Just this morning in our Revelation reading, we read from Exodus 15, which is the song that the people of Israel sang together with Moses after the Lord crushed the armies of the most powerful nation on the face of the earth. You literally have a bunch of slaves running away from the strongest army in the world. And all of a sudden, their backs are against the the sea. And at their front is this army. And they say, what are we going to do? We are all going to die. And God does what only God can do. He parts the sea and they cross on dry land. And the armies of Egypt, they say, we're going after them. They hotly pursue. And what does the Lord do? He crushes them. He brings the waters back in so forcefully that they perish in the sea. It does not matter how strong you are, how much money you have, how well connected you may be. The Lord does not care who your daddy is or your granddaddy or how many family members you got in town. The Lord does not care about any of that because he is king forever and ever and ever. And he does justice. He moves against the wicked. Everything passes into nothing. But our God stands forever. And David knows that that God who stands forever, that covenant Lord, he uses that name again in verse 17, O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. The King who reigns forever hears the desires of His people, particularly those who are afflicted. He hears them when they call. It literally says that he strengthens their heart and he inclines his ear to them. He strengthens their heart so that they can continue to live in the midst of oppression. It is not wrong for us to pray that the Lord would take wickedness out of this world, but we also must be praying that the Lord would strengthen our hearts. Because the fact of the matter is that as long as we have breath until Jesus comes back, there will be wickedness in this world. And what we need is strengthened hearts. But it also says that the Lord inclines His ear. Literally, the imagery here is like when I bend down low to listen to my children. I have to do that with my son James because he talks really fast and it gets very jumbled and I don't understand him. And so I have to get really close so I can pick out those consonant sounds so that I can be sure that I know what he's saying. But I incline my ear to him. I listen to him. And the Lord does the same to his people, to his children. He inclines his ear to us when we call upon him. 
And it's not just that he hears us. It's not just an empty thing. It says that he inclines his ear to do justice. Specifically, he does justice for the fatherless and the oppressed so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. The Lord does justice to remind us that he is God. And we trust that he is God and know that he will do justice. And ultimately, ultimately we know that evil has met its end in Christ. Psalm 110 verse 1 says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And Jesus quotes that and says, uh, just so you guys know, that's David talking about me. That in, at the end of all things, everything will be in subjection to Jesus Christ. The justice of God demanded payment for sin. And Christ has provided that payment. And so this morning, I want you to take away from this that you should be mindful of your own wickedness. If you are a believer, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, recognize that you still have sinful flesh that is inclining you toward evil. Don't believe that just because you are forgiven that your fight against your flesh is over. It is not. Now, hear me clearly. Just because you still sin does not mean that you are not in Christ. The payment by the blood of Jesus Christ is effective for sin for you forever. If you are in Christ, you are in Christ forever. But in order to be in Christ, you must repent and believe the gospel. You must know and understand that God made all things good and that creation fell into sin because Adam and Eve disobeyed God. And as a result of their sin, sin and death spread to all men because all sinned. And ladies, that doesn't just mean you're excluded from that. It's mankind, okay? And that sin and that wickedness comes as a result of rejecting God, just as we saw in this psalm today. But God, because of His great love for us, while we were yet sinners, sent His Son to die for us. His Son took on human flesh, lived a perfect life, died a sinner's death, was buried, and then rose again that we would have life. He took our sin upon Himself, to pay the penalty, to satisfy the justice of God. And He is coming again. He is coming again. And those are the things that you must believe in order to know Him. You must repent of your sin, believe the Gospel, and live your life for Him. And so this morning, in just a few moments, we're going to take the Lord's Supper together, and I'm going to talk more about that in just a second. But this is how we are going to respond to the Word of God. But I want you to know that if you are here today and you don't know Jesus Christ, don't let today pass by without knowing Him, without repenting and believing the Gospel. If you feel in your heart 
today, the conviction of the Lord upon you, come and talk to me. Come and talk to me while we sing. Come and seek me out after we gather this morning. I would love to talk with you more about how you too can repent and believe the gospel and know Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, trust in our perfect, holy, righteous God to do justice. Fight against your own sin. Trust the Lord to banish wickedness from the earth when Christ comes again. Let's pray together. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your grace and your goodness toward us. Thank you, Lord, that you work justice in the world. And so, Father, this morning as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper together, I pray, Lord, that you would help us, Lord, to repent of our sin, that you would cause all of us, believers and non-believers alike, to believe the gospel today, to trust in your goodness today, to do justice because it is who you are. In Christ's name, amen.